0: You are listening to audio from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our text of Scripture this morning is from uh the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, starting in verse five. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. Um, How beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. These are words from uh, the prophet Isaiah. Paul quotes as well. in Romans chapter 10, and they have echoed in my mind this week as I've been thinking about this text here in Luke, these first 38 verses, and it's over and over in my mind how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We all all love good news. And so I, I want you to do me a favor here at the outset of our time. I want you to... Just where you are, just get get kind of still before the Lord, just for a minute. And I want you to think for a couple of minutes back to a time when you received good news. It could have been news that you had waited a long, long time to hear. It could have been news that was spontaneous, news that you weren't expecting. But I want you to think back to that moment. I mean, if it helps to close your eyes for a couple minutes, you can do that. But I want you to think back to that moment when you heard something that just stirred up joy in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. And once you have that moment in your mind, I want you to sit with it for just a few seconds. I want you to think back to where you were. I want you to think back to what you may have been doing right before you got the good news. What were the sounds you were hearing, if you can remember that? What were the smells you were smelling? What were the sights you were seeing? And I want you to think for a minute about the person who brought you that good news. You now, what was the. What was the disposition on their face as they told you this news you wanted to hear? And was it full of of life as they spoke to you, this good news? Was was their face kind of stoic because maybe they were trying to surprise you with good news? Did the expression on their face after they told you mimic the same joy that you now had? Upon receiving the good news? Were they, were they holding your hands? Or were they touching your shoulder? Or were they giving you a hug? As they told you this good news, you've been waiting to hear. And as you think back to that good news, what are you, what are you feeling right now as you think about that memory? Does it put a smile on your face? to cause your heart to race a little bit more, your eyes getting a little teary as you're thinking back to that moment that was just a moment of really good news. Those moments that you're thinking of maybe extremely joy-provoking that even now, many months, years later even, they still bring up emotions in you. You can, uh, you can open your eyes. Come back to me right now. There's There is... There's nothing like receiving good news. I'm going to share with you what I was thinking about this week and what I was thinking about even as I read that to you. I was thinking back to December the 7th, 2018, almost five years ago, a few days from now. Christine and I were living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, and Christina taught that semester at Richmond Graduate University, a graduate counseling school there, and, and she <laughs> invited me to come to their tacky sweater Christmas party she was having at the end of the semester, which I won, by the way. I have a sweater that will trump all your sweaters. Uh, it's only brought out on special occasions, and uh, if I need to win a contest, I will bring it out. Um, but we just wrapped up that party, and we were driving to TJ Maxx right there in the Cumberland area of Atlanta. My mom was coming into town, and we just moved into a new house, and we didn't have any bedding for the guest room because the house was a little bigger than the one we lived in before, and we are going to TJ Maxx. We are planning, we're, a few days after that, we were planning on going to Disney World, which was our, like, first Disney Christmas time because our 10-year anniversary was coming up, and we wanted to celebrate it at, at Disney. And, uh, but we, we pulled into the TJ Maxx parking lot, we were driving separate cars. And Christine got out of her car... And she was on the phone, and, and her face was kind of that face of somebody having a conversation that's just full of shock. And I remember when I first saw her, my first thought was, oh, man, who died? Right? It's, it's, it's just like you're getting news that you weren't expecting, and my first thoughts, maybe this is more about my personality, is like this is bad news. Um, something bad has happened. But she hung up the phone, and she, uh, she looked at me. And she said, she said, that was Allison, uh, our caseworker for adoption, and she said a baby girl had been born at Grady Hospital, and she needs to know by 7 o'clock tonight if we want to adopt her, be her mom and dad. And that was, that was news that we had waited years to hear, it was news that changed our lives, <laughs> I can't even talk about it, changed our lives for the better in so many ways, was news I was reminded of yesterday as I'm watching my five-year-old daughter celebrate her birthday at Trampoline Park with many of your kids yesterday. There's nothing like receiving good news. Nothing like it. And Luke doesn't waste any time in his gospel giving us good news. In fact, as we celebrate the next four weeks of Advent, Walking through chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, we're going to see just how central good news is in the gospel of Luke. Eight times in the gospel of Luke, the coming mission and message of Jesus is explicitly said to have been rooted in good news. It was good news. And good news for Luke doesn't just begin when Jesus is physically born. But for Luke, good news is rooted in a God who speaks and a God who makes promises and always delivers on his word, and a, and a God who knows no limits, and a God who knows no bounds, a God who can thwart even the laws of nature because he made them. He holds them in his hand to bring about miraculous and joy-filled works for the glory of his name and the deliverance of his people. And as verse 37 makes clear in our text that nothing is impossible, nothing will be impossible with God, as we'll come back to many times this morning, Nothing was, is, or ever will be impossible for God to accomplish. Nothing was, is, or ever will be impossible for God to accomplish. And that's good news, church. That's good news. And we're going to see how it's good news, particularly in the lives of three individuals In our text for this morning, so let's turn our attention to it. Luke chapter one verses five through thirty-eight. What we see first in in these verses are two families. We see two families. First family, Zechariah and Elizabeth, calling them the devout aged. It's a priestly family. Zechariah from the priestly family of Abijah. Elizabeth also from the priestly line of Aaron. It's like they're they're the blue bloods of of priestly couples with their lineage you know, coming from such a a well-established lineage. And it says in verse six that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, it could have seemed like an oxymoron in that day, a couple extremely devout, blameless before God with no children. Because children in, in the culture, the Jewish culture of the time, were a direct correlation to being blessed by God. That if you are devout and walking with the Lord, he will bless you with many children. Your quiver will be full, so to speak. And so it seems like, if you're looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth, your first thought in that day, seeing that they are older and barren with no children is that not they're under the blessing of God, but that they're under the curse of God. That something in their lives was displeasing to the Lord that would prevent them from having children. So we can probably imagine just, just the internal dialogue Zechariah and Elizabeth may have had within their own hearts, you know, the conversations that may, they may have had around their dinner table over the years, You know, praying, hoping that by year's end there may be another little one around that table. But those years went by, one after another after another, and they'd find themselves still alone, still waiting for God to give them what their hearts desired, what their hearts longed for. And we have no indication, even in all this longing and this waiting, that their faith ever wavered, that Zechariah ceased doing his priestly duties, that Elizabeth ever doubted the Lord's goodness. We have no indication of that at all from our text. But the cultural reproach they would have been living in for having no children would have been very, very great. So here they are in their old age, committed to God, serving him with their lives despite receiving from, not receiving from him something they had longed for. They didn't let their disappointment produce in them cynicism or or bitterness towards the Lord. They didn't let their circumstances dictate their theology, their thoughts of God. They didn't alter or compromise their faith in him, but they held fast to the Lord and trusted him, despite not knowing his ways or his plans for them. And then in verse 7, with its explicit mention of barrenness, I mean, we're coming out of First and 2 Samuel. If you remember 1 Samuel chapter 1 with Hannah, her barrenness. If there's anything we know from the scriptures, when a, a woman is mentioned to be barren, it, it's building anticipation that something's about to happen, right? <clears throat> Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Elkanah, Hannah. And we could go on and on and on and on down the list, the Old Testament. But barrenness in the scriptures always seems to be preceded, always seems to precede glory. Glory usually follows barrenness in the story of the Lord. We're going to come back to that here in just a second. And then the second family we see, let's fast forward a little bit in our text. second family we see, Mary and Joseph, particularly Mary, the backwoods virgin. Now, where the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth takes place in the heart of Israel in Jerusalem, doing the priestly work at the temple, the story of Mary that begins in verse 26 takes place many miles north of Jerusalem, a little backwoods forgotten town called Nazareth. The town so forgotten and kind of ridiculed, that the common saying of the day was, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like, can anything good come from Starkville? Um, and this, this girl, this girl, Mary, probably a a teenager at the time, she was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, betrothed. And Joseph was from the house of David. So just as Elizabeth, being barren, should build our anticipation that something's about to happen, so Joseph, being from the house of David, as readers, should, again, be building our anticipation here that something's about to happen. We just spent months in the promises God made to the house of David, right? Just walked through 2 Samuel, particularly 2 Samuel chapter 7. I told you to tuck away in your mind 2 Samuel 7, because it's through the lens of 2 Samuel 7 that much of the New Testament is understood. Eternal kingship, a future, a hope, a messiah in these promises made to the house of David. You know, Luke is showing us in his, his writing chops here. And he is sowing among his readers, as any great writer would do, seeds of anticipation. And we see this anticipation satisfied in our next section here. So we have two families. Now we have two announcements, two announcements. So let's rewind a second back to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we read in verses 8 through 10 that Zechariah was in the temple offering up incense to the Lord. Now, this incense was a, a symbolic practice to give a physical picture of kind of what prayer was, what prayer was doing. You know, just as the incense would rise from the altar up into the heavens, so to speak, so when we offer our prayers, they rise up to the Lord out of our mouths. It's kind of, even as you smell the, the smell of the incense, it would be a reminder that our prayers are like a, a sweet aroma into the nostrils of the Lord, so to speak. But this burning of incense would have been a great honor for anyone in the priestly work. You know, the Mishnah, which is the the Jewish oral tradition, stated that a priest could only offer up incense once in his lifetime, one time. So burning of incense for a priest like Zechariah would have been one of the most important moments in his entire life. And as he burned this incense, he would be offering up prayers, intercession on behalf of the nation of Israel, his people. Now, remember, remember, we are, as verse five tells us, we're in the days of Herod here. All right, which were not like the worst days as a Jewish person. But Israel's still under Roman captivity. They are not a free nation. Even though they're in their land, they are still under the occupation and oppression of Rome. So these prayers were for a Messiah, a deliverer, to come and free the people of Israel from the tyranny they lived under. We just sing, O come and come, Emmanuel. And that would have been a, probably a common prayer for the people in the days of Christ. It may still be a common prayer now, even among the Jewish people. So in the middle of this act, offering up incense, <clears throat> excuse me, an angel shows up. And not just any angel, but Gabriel, the angelic messenger of peace and restoration. It's the same Gabriel that showed up back in Daniel chapter 9 to the prophet Daniel. It's the same Gabriel that would show up to Mary here in a few verses after he shows up to Zechariah. And he appears to Zechariah with the message that he and Elizabeth are going to have a son in their old age. We'll call him John the forerunner. The forerunner. And there's six components to this announcement that we're going to run through real quickly. Six things to this announcement. First, John, this forerunner, he'll be a bringer of joy. Be a bringer of joy. It says you here in our text, you, like, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you, the angel Gabriel says, shall have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at the birth of John. You know that Greek word there for gladness uh, is the word agaliasis agaliasis, it, and it means great and lively joy. It's like, like joy you can see, joy that affects your countenance, you know, joy that, that causes you to get up and dance, move around the room, to jump and yell. It's the same word Mary would use in verse 47 in her Magnificat, which she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Gabriel's saying, hey, Zechariah, Elizabeth, old age and weak knees and brittle bones, are not going to stop you and Elizabeth from dancing at this good news. That's how great the good news was. Second, John will be great before God. Be great before God. Jesus would later say of John, there's no one born among women greater than John the Baptist. His role would be unique. Be the messenger proclaiming the arrival of the Christ, of the Messiah. Third, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, in verse 15, Gabriel instructs Zechariah that that John is not to drink wine or strong drink, but he'll be filled with the Spirit. Kind of reminds us of uh, Paul's words in Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Right? Don't fill yourselves with this. Fill yourselves with the Spirit. But John's not the only one, excuse me, John is the only one in the New Testament that is filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. You know, the normal pattern of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit filling us, is, you know, we trust by God's grace through faith in Christ. We believe the gospel, and as a result of believing the gospel, Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he was, he saves us and cleanses us, and God fills us with the Spirit, right? Fills us up. Seals us for the final day of salvation. That's the normal way. Now with John the Baptist, he is filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. You know, God chose him for this unique task before he was even born. And he equipped him with what he would need to fulfill the task, the call that God had placed on his life as this forerunner, as this prophet. Fourth. John will bring about great repentance in Israel. Great repentance. Children of Israel turning back to God, fathers turning towards children, or in other words there would be restoration of families. The foolish would become wise, Gabriel says. The people will be prepared for the Messiah, spiritually prepared to receive him. You know John will be a great moral reformer. You know, a new era was coming, an era marked by restored relationships and spiritual renewal. Fifth, John would be the last of the great Old Testament prophets, be the last. Gabriel links him to Elijah, you know, not that that John would be Elijah one-to-one, but that many things about John's ministry would link him to the ministry of Elijah's. I mean, think about just the similarities. You know, both John and Elijah ministered in degenerate times. Both were courageous in the face of danger. Both suffered for their ministries. Both called out those in power to repent. Called out kings, right? And Gabriel linking John to Elijah also fulfills some of the final words in the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi, last prophet in the Old Testament. 400 years before, the coming of Christ, spoke of a day when God would send his messenger. And that messenger would prepare the way before the Messiah. And the Lord says in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Sound familiar? It's almost verbatim, a little, what Gabriel said here to Zechariah. 400 years had passed and the Lord had not spoken in any authoritative way through a prophet. And now God is breaking his silence right before he left off and saying the time had come. Time had come. And then sixth, John will prepare the way for the Messiah. Isaiah 40, really pivotal moment in Isaiah, the Lord seeks to comfort his people in the midst of their warfare, in the midst of their exile. And he says through Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And how does God begin to demonstrate that comfort? He sends them a messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. Uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. The glory of the Lord was about to be revealed in Jesus Christ. And John was set apart from the womb to prepare the people's hearts to receive their comfort and their king. So that was the first announcement. John, the fulfillment. Let's fast forward again in our story to Mary. See, Gabriel making a second announcement. Jesus, the fulfillment. John, the forerunner. Jesus, the fulfillment. And there are four parts for breaking down this announcement as well. Four parts in this announcement of Christ. We'll run through these pretty quickly as well. First, he will be called the Son of God. You see it there in verse 32. It's also referenced in verse 35 of our text. He'll possess a unique relationship with God his father. One, that would be the first fruits of our relationship for those who are redeemed in Christ Jesus as sons and daughters of God. Second, he's the consummation of the promises given to David, the fulfillment of the promises, consummation. It's a royal announcement that's happening right here. A new king has come from the line of David. A fulfillment of all kings were intended to be. Jesus Christ is the apex. And he will occupy the throne of the greatest king in Israel's history, David. And then third, his kingdom will never end. Be forever. Again, going back to 2 Samuel 7, fulfilling these covenant promises to David and his offspring. This this coming child born to Mary Would be the greatest ruler in Israel and in the world ever. There would be no greater king. And his kingdom would not only be limited to Israel, his kingdom would not only be limited to a brief duration of his time on earth, but his kingdom would be universal in scope and unending in time. And then, fourth, he will be holy. Be holy, verse 35. (coughs) He'll be set apart, he'll be unique you will be other. You know, because of the Holy Spirit's hand in the birth of Jesus, this baby would be holy as well. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, these announcements are unbelievable, right? In, in almost every sense of the word. Two families, two announcements. An elderly couple experiences a miracle of having a baby in their old age. A teenage virgin who'd never known a man having a baby apart from normal biological means. It's kind of like two ends of the spectrum here, right? And God delivers miracles on both ends. So how do they respond to these announcements? How do they respond? Let's look at two responses. First, we see the forgetful doubt of Zechariah. Forgetful doubt. He has kind of spiritual amnesia here. So let's rewind again. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Like, how shall I know that you're going to do these things? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. You know, Zechariah here is, is asking for a sign, a proof. That he would know this to be true. The verse could also be written, if you want to change the wording a little bit, according to what will I know this? What will you show me that will prove to me that your words are true? And to make the point even more clear, uh, Luke, when he's writing in the Greek, he puts an emphasis on the I. It's almost like Zechariah is pointing out to Gabriel, I am old. My wife is old, as if Gabriel didn't know that, right? Him and his wife, Zechariah, emphasizes are well past the years of having a baby. And in some sense, some sense, I mean, you can't really blame this guy's doubt, right? He and Elizabeth are probably in their 60s, 70s at this point. They have prayed an exhausted prayer for decades for a child, and God has not yet granted them that child. When Elizabeth passes by the childbearing age, now I wonder if the prayer became less and less. They knew their Old Testament, they knew the story of Abraham and Sarah, but when you're in it, it's hard. It's hard to hold on to the belief that God can still do those miracles. You know, simple biology told them that their prayers would not be answered. So, in some ways, his doubts are understandable. But at the same time, there's literally an angel standing right in front of him, right? (laughs) One who literally had just left the throne room of God to deliver a message of good news straight from the Lord's mouth. When Gabriel responds to Zechariah's question in verse 19, he also responds with an emphatic eye of his own in the Greek. You may be old, Zechariah, but I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you this good news. Zechariah wanted proof over promise. He saw his problems as greater than God's power. His response shows that even in the holiest of places and even serving in the holiest of positions, and even engaging in the holiest acts of worship, there may still be tainted, it may still be tainted with seeds of doubt. So Gabriel does give him a sign. And the sign is he won't be able to speak until John is born. But when he is finally able to open his mouth, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, and when he's finally able to use his tongue and his voices again, we're going to read about that gladness and that joy that the Lord brought him and Elizabeth. But then, if you fast forward to Mary, her response is quite the opposite. In her response, we see her humble faith. We see the humble faith of Mary. Yeah, I find it beautiful. <laughs> I love it that that when Gabriel shows up to Mary and addresses her as, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you in verse 28. That Mary's more troubled by the words of Gabriel than the fact that an angel is standing right before her. You know, most of the time when angels show up, they have to remind people not to be afraid because they're just scary to look at, right? Not with Mary. I mean, the fact that there's a supernatural, angelic being standing right in front of her does not trouble her as much as being addressed as, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. You know, in Mary's mind, it's easier to believe in a supernatural order than in how God views her. You know, and I wonder if there's a word there for many of us this morning. You may have no qualms believing God exists that you struggle every single day to believe he loves you. You struggle to believe that he cares about you, that he desires your good, that he knows your name, that because of Christ, you are favored in his sight. And Mary, she responds to Gabriel's announcements with the, announcement with a question of her own. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, Mary's not asking for a sign. She's not asking for God to prove himself to her. She believes in faith. But she knows biology. She may be from the backwoods, but she knows how human beings were created. It's not can you do it? She believes he can do it. But how will you do it? It's a question that's built upon faith, it's faith seeking understanding. I believe, help me understand. Not, I will believe when you help me understand. It's different. But Gabriel does give her a sign, even though she's not asking for one. And her sign is Elizabeth. If God can give Elizabeth a child in her old age, he can also give you a child in your virginity, Mary. And Mary says in verse 38, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Although I cannot see your plan, Lord, I trust your heart. Whatever you see fit, I am your servant. <laughs> you know, it's easy. It's easy for us to, to miss the the quiet heroism in Mary's response. You know, it's easy to overlook exactly what Mary's submission to the Lord's plans were going to cost her. You know, whereas a baby removed Elizabeth's reproach, she says as much. The end of, what verse is that? Uh, Verse 25. Whereas a baby removed her reproach, it only brought reproach to Mary. She wasn't married she was about to be perceived as a lunatic. There wasn't a father. I'm a virgin. Can you imagine having that conversation with your parents? You know? Mom and dad, it wasn't my fault. I literally didn't sleep with anyone. Sounds crazy, right? The things that would be said about her behind her back or even to her face the rejection she would bear, the shame she would bring upon her family. She would wear a scarlet letter for the rest of her life. But what was it that gave her the resolve? What was it that gave the courage to this teenage girl in the backwoods town to submit to God's plan, it was the fact that she served one great God who cannot be stopped in achieving his purposes. How will this be, she asks. How will this be? It will be, Gabriel says, because nothing will be impossible but God. Nothing was, nothing is, and nothing will be Impossible with God. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that? I mean, I think about how often, even when I pray in situations where I'm praying, where the only thing that will help is a miracle, I find myself that even when I pray, I try to give God an out. If it be your will, O Lord, try to save face for him, like he needs me to defend him if he doesn't follow through on what I ask for. And granted, there is a sense that we want God's will to be done, right? But in my heart of hearts, if I'm being honest with you, what I'm praying for in that moment is, God, please don't, don't embarrass me by not delivering on what I want. <clears throat> do We believe God can do the impossible Do you pray like that? Do I pray like that? Or maybe for us, it's not a question of can he do it, but will he do it? Does he want to? (laughs) You know, oftentimes, what makes good news even better is that it's not expected. You know, when it seemed to be previously impossible We get good news that it happened, that the impossible was possible because God intervened. That's why there's nothing like receiving good news. Again, we all love good news. And so what I want us to do is I want to close out our time. Cody, you guys can go ahead and come up. I want to close out our time much like we started our time. But I want you to do one more thing with me. I want you to think for a couple of moments back to when you first believed the gospel. I want you to think about when you first heard it, when you first believed it. Again, if you need to close your eyes to do this, do it. And the gospel could have been something you heard most of your life. It could have been something you heard for the first time and you knew it to be true. But I want you to think back to when God saved you. To think back to that moment when God made you spiritually alive. And once you have that moment in your mind, I want you to sit with it for just a few moments. Where were you? What were the sounds? Had you just sung any songs? Did songs follow? About the smells, the sights, the people. Were you in a crowded room? Were you by yourself? Were you the one person? Then I want you to think about the person who shared the gospel with you. What was the disposition on their face? As they told you the good news. Was it full of life? As they spoke life-giving words. Could you tell they actually believed what they were saying? Were they. Were they holding your hands? Touching your shoulder? Were they giving you a hug. As they shared it with you. Were they weeping tears with you, maybe? Were they comforting you in that moment. And as you think about that moment right now, what are you feeling now when that memory comes to mind? So put a smile on your face does it cause your heart to race a little bit more? Does your eyes get a little teary you think back to that moment because it was so special, so, so joy-provoking that even now, months and years later, the emotion's still well up in you. Does it produce overwhelming gratitude in you? Whatever you are thinking about, Church, that moment where God brought you from death to life is a a lifelong reminder that nothing was, is, or ever will be impossible for God to accomplish. He is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. A God who would send His Son. A son born by seemingly impossible means. A son who would live a seemingly impossible, sinless life. A son who would die a seemingly impossible death of a sinner. And a son who would be seemingly impossibly raised from the dead. A son who saves us who seem impossibly unable to be saved. A son through whom God makes possible the impossible. That's good news, church. Let's pray together. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. If it is true that you are high above the heavens, if it is true that you hold oceans as drops of water in your hands if it is true that you call out the stars by night every single night never missing one if it is true that in Christ Jesus we are being sustained at this very moment by his word and by his power if, if all those things are true then what can you not do what can you not do Give us the faith to believe that you can do the impossible and the faith to hold on to you when you choose not to do it. We know, oh God, that all things, all things that come into our lives as children of yours. All things are for our good. All things. Prayers answered and prayers unanswered. Help us to believe that and yet at the same time pray like you're gonna do something. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. All of our days, oh God, all of our days. Give us the experience of a tasting better, tasting sweeter. We need more of you. Fill us up, oh God. Fill us up afresh with your spirit. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.